Political Capital is brought to you by Uber Canada. 92% of drivers and delivery people on Uber report that flexibility is important when choosing work. That's why over 140,000 Canadians choose flexibility with Uber. Learn more at uber.com slash flexibilityworks. Check podcasts. Hey everyone, and welcome to Political Capital, your source for all the latest in BC politics. And boy, is there a lot going on out there with the legislative session ending, the government kind of under fire on a bunch of different topics. We want to break it all down for you this week, but thank you so much for joining us, watching us on Czech TV, on the Czech Plus app, on YouTube, or listening to us on wherever you get your podcast. All the old episodes of the show are on there as well on Check Plus if you want to check us out and get up to speed on everything we've been talking about uh, last week's show. Breaking down the Royal BC Museum controversy, that was very interesting, worth you checking out if you missed it. Let's bring in the panel this week that's going to break everything down. Gillian Oliver, BC Green strategist extraordinaire, is here as she is every week. Katie Merrifield, Vice President of Wellington Advocacy, is here. And Jeff Ferrier usually joins us he is off this week. So we're going to jump right in to, I think, uh, one of the biggest announcements we've had in BC politics in a while now, a historic announcement that Ottawa has approved BC's request for decriminalization of personal possession of small amounts of illicit substances. So we're talking cocaine, heroin, MDMA, methamphetamines. If you're below a certain amount, you won't be charged or arrested or police won't seize your drugs. The idea here, according to the BC government, reduce the stigma around this. If you're not facing the, the potential to be arrested or charged, you might be more willing to uh, be open to treatment or talking about uh, your drug-related issues and addictions issues. It is uh, the first Canadian province to have uh, gone this route, so everyone is kind of watching here. What do we make of the decision, BC's position on this, and what it all means? Jillian, why don't we start with you? Yeah, I think the government deserves a lot of credit for showing leadership on this. That's kind of like the main point is to show really high level leadership um, at the top that this is a health crisis. It's not, you know, a, a, an issue of criminality um, and that's how it should be treated. Um, and the idea is that that sort of, you know, eventually, you know, filters down into treatment. It helps, you know, health sends a big signal to healthcare professionals about how they should be treating people struggling with these issues um, and, and sort of is like a, an important foundational piece to, to shifting the way that we treat um, overdoses and addictions. Um, there, the devil is in the details like it always is. Um, the province had asked for a higher uh, amount um, to be decriminalized and the federal government essentially cut that in half. Um, what the province had put forward was already done in consultation with advocates with people who, who use drugs and who advocate on the issue as well as with police. Um, so it was already a compromise. And I think it was a little bit disappointing to see Ottawa come in and sort of, you know, um, put its, its thumb on the scales on the issue. Um, and there's also a long delay of, in implementation. You know, it's a crisis. People are dying every day and this doesn't come um, in until January. Um, so, you know, some disappointing details, but all in all, a, an important step towards treating it like a health crisis. Yeah, they're good points there because this is a watered-down version of BC's original request. Ottawa, like you mentioned, changed those details, decided 
it didn't agree with the kind of, I think, the core numbers in BC's submission and instituted its own and then kind of forced them on the government. So that's an interesting dynamic. Uh, but Katie, this is supposed to fit into a much larger, broader discussion about addictions, everything from safe supply to treatment, uh, decriminalization fits in there. Uh, that discussion of the spectrum here. What do you make of adding this into the mix? Yeah, so I'd say this was appropriately watered down, but we can get into that later. Um, I agree with the motive in that we should be moving drug use and addiction into the healthcare, healthcare space where it belongs. But there are several problems uh, with this announcement. Because I think what's key when you move forward with decriminalization, uh, you should also have an adequate treatment system for the for it to be successful. And we don't have that here. Um, if we look at a few examples globally where decriminalization has happened, um, like let's talk about opioid substitution therapy. So in Switzerland, where it's decriminalized, almost 70 percent of heroin addicts there are on opioid substitution therapy, which is the highest ratio in the world. In BC, we have approximately 88,000 people um, who are opioid dependent, and less than one third of those folks are able to access um, opioid substitution treatment due to cost or accessibility. In terms of treatment infrastructure, in Portugal, which I will remind folks is the gold standard, you know, they have a committee on drug dissuasion uh, that recommends uh, users everything like services like counseling to residential treatment. Uh, the drugs are confiscated and police have a really defined role in all of this. And in BC, we, we lack that infrastructure. And then in terms of results, like let's take a look somewhere closer to home in Oregon in 2020, uh, they moved via a public referendum to decriminalize drugs for personal possession. And since then, fentanyl laced drugs have resulted in a 20% increase in hospitalizations and drug overdoses have doubled. So given our drug supply here in BC is overwhelmingly cut with fentanyl and, and its analogs, not to mention benzodiazepines, I think we're on the same track to to experience what or, what Oregon did without the appropriate uh, treatment infrastructure in place. So, Katie, the, we've talked about treatment in the past and the fact the government doesn't really seem to know what it should be doing there. It keeps adding random beds. We don't know how many beds are needed. There's gaps all over the place. Is that a is it a solvable issue treatment from your mind? Is there something government should be doing? Are there other things that should have happened before decriminalization or, or what should they do now? Yeah, I think it should have happened in tandem. Um, and there are other jurisdictions uh, that are embracing innovations that I think we should look at here at home over the next seven months. Like in Alberta, they removed uh, any any user costs to publicly funded residential treatment. Uh, the, if you if you are in distress, you can go to any fire station in Edmonton, and they will uh, immediately connect you with virtual opioid uh, dependency clinics. Like these are the kinds of initiatives that we need to see. They announced four thousand spaces at the beginning of our mandate, whereas in BC we get press releases that oh, there's five beds opening up in this region, as if that is something to celebrate, like it, it needs to be better. We need to address this in a very comprehensive way. And I just don't think um, that pushing half measures does the trick. And, you know, I wanna cite a quote from David Eby back in 2009, when he was the head of the BC Civil Liberties Association, he said, if you want to spend your entire welfare check on crack, that is your right. It is our moral obligation to offer folks a way out of it, but they have the right to make that stupid decision. So I kind of agree with uh, Mr. Eby on the moral obligation to help 
addicts or help drug users with a way out. And I don't see that happening. And I think it's also really telling that not a single premier in Canada outside of British Columbia has indicated that they are going to follow suit with this announcement. I think everyone is going to be adopting a wait and see attitude to see if we move towards this more successful Switzerland style model or if we end up like Oregon. Uh, Jillian, that federal dynamic and the other premiers, as Katie mentioned there, you know, A, we have Ottawa watering down BC's proposal. B, it was announced the day before there was a vote set uh, for NDP uh, MP Gord John's bill to make decriminalization national that the federal liberals wanted to oppose. And it felt like maybe they were using BC for a bit of cover, you know, coming out in favor of, of decrim over here, but then voting against it the next day. The dynamic federally about this is how much of that is in play here and and as Katie mentioned, the other premiers don't seem enthusiastic about this. Could that have influenced Ottawa's kind of tepid enthusiasm on this as well? Definitely. And I think, you know, I think attitudes um, in other provinces are really different from BC, where we've kind of been ground zero for this crisis. Um, and we've also seen, you know, other uh, past political leaders, you know, take bolder steps to sort of change the conversation, like um, Mayor Philip Owen in Vancouver, who... Um, implemented uh, safe injection sites against the wishes of the federal government and then had to fight the government in court. Um, that's an example of, you know, a, a smaller level of government just saying, you know, we don't want to get involved in federal politics. We want to just plow ahead because it's the right thing to do. But there's a huge cost to that. They were, you know, that really um, absorbed a lot of the city of Vancouver's uh, resources and attention for a long time fighting the federal government on those issues. So it makes sense why a provincial government would want to sort of, you know, go a little bit slower, try to get Ottawa's buy-in um, and, and do it in a little bit of a less controversial way, especially on an, an issue like this. But on the other hand, you kind of see how it, um, has the potential to sort of stymie progress in other provinces where, um, you know, for political reasons, uh, there aren't as many provincial and local leaders willing to sort of take a bolder stance on it. Yeah, it felt to me like this was the least the federal government could have done, given that the prime minister in the election kind of promised to take this request seriously and help BC out and couldn't flat out reject it. So instead, they came back with a much smaller uh, threshold a three-year pilot project instead of making it permanent. And if we have an election provincially or federally, and we will in the next three years, this whole pilot project could disappear. And then waiting seven months, the provincial government is going to get hammered every single month between now and then for continued record overdose deaths. They're not going to be able to point to decrim until January of next year. So it's it, in some ways, yes, in a historic announcement, but in other ways, it fell short, I think, of what BC government officials wanted. And I think they also felt... They got jammed by Ottawa more ways than one on the announcement and the details of this. So we'll keep an eye on can, that. Can I ask Katie, one more question? Want to jump in? Yeah. Why, why should that amount be higher? So I spent this morning just looking at uh, other jurisdictions uh, that have decriminalized uh, hard drugs. And I, I go back to Portugal. Their, their restrictions are one gram for heroin, uh, two for cocaine. Peru is two for cocaine. Mexico, you can have you can carry up to half a gram with no penalty, 4.5, where is that coming from? Like Minister Bennett said she used stats from law enforcement indicating that 85% of drug seizures are, are under 2.5 grams. So I'm just, I'm wondering why anyone would think that it would be a good idea to take a unprecedented step of having such a high um, uh, high number, 4.5 grams, when, when that, it hasn't been tested here and we lack appropriate treatment infrastructure. 
Well, in the BC's proposal, there was a 19-group roundtable that, including user groups, that said, here's the average uh, amount that is used based on the type of drug, and here's the average amount daily. And they felt that uh, it should be even higher than 4.5 grams, but that certainly wasn't something Ottawa seemed comfortable with. And so BC's position, I think as Jillian said, was already a compromise at 4.5. User groups wanted more, police wanted less. The government found that middle ground, and then Ottawa said... No, we'll go with the amount that the police chiefs want. And the argument being in rural and remote communities, for example, um, it's harder to access illicit substances. So you're going to have to buy more often uh, to feed your addiction. And that will lead to more um, dangerous interactions and potentially purchasing contaminated drugs. It's, I think you bring up an, an open debate on the amount. And BC uh, said in the wake of this announcement that they hope this is the floor uh, amount and not the ceiling because they want to pressure Ottawa to raise it um, in the, I guess, years ahead on this pilot project. We're, uh, let's jump into the next topic here, and that is the end of the spring legislative session. Five months long, uh, I, I would not call it an eventful legislative agenda, 22 bills, things like a cooling off period in real estate, a race-based uh, data collection law, some forestry and First Nations legislation. Um, there was a lot of political dynamics here, though at play. Uh, we saw BC Liberal leader Kevin Falcon arrive into the House. We saw the government uh, introduce the Royal BC Museum project, which created an enormous backlash. And I think for the first time, we saw a lot of issues start to stick on this government about record high inflation, record high gas prices, record high housing prices, all the healthcare system, emergency room closures, uh, I certainly think the government was on the defensive as the session ended. What stood out to you, Jillian, about the session and how do you kind of view it? Yeah, I think you're right. I think, um, you know, government, it takes a really long time to draft legislation. So government is preparing for a session many, many months, even a year ahead of when it actually happened. So I think that's sort of why you saw the government's agenda and tone be quite out of step with where the public mood was at, because there's been a big shift coming out of, um, you know, the ending of COVID restrictions, um, all of these other big uh big issues sort of coming to the surface that you mentioned. Um, and then I think also, of course, with, with Kevin Falcon arriving back in the, in the House, um, there had almost been sort of like a holiday from intense politics, both because of, you know, being in the public health crisis of COVID and because we had an interim leader of the BC Liberals who was really kind of just focused on keeping the caucus together, doing good work and sort of just keeping things stable until... Um, till Falcon arrived. And then we saw Falcon arrive at, at, at the, the Monday after the Friday that the Royal BC Museum uh, hit. And, you know, you probably couldn't choreograph uh, better timing for the Liberals to sort of come in with all of this new energy and really hit the ground running as opposition. So I think you're right. We saw a huge tone shift um, sort of, I think, in the provincial media landscape and I think or political landscape. And I think that's sort of, you know, what stood out to me and um it's, it's a session that's going to sort of mark, I think, a, like a like a vibe shift in uh, in halfway through this mandate. The the point Jillian just made about it being slight, the government's slightly out of step, Katie, I think is an interesting one because the liberals were able to capitalize that and turn it into being tone deaf. It felt like the legislative agenda. It felt like the speaking points. It felt like the priorities and focus were out of line with the pressures people were feeling. And that gave a lot of room for the opposition mm -hmm. to jump in and, and, and make some really uh, hard punches that I think landed. 
Yeah, I agree. I think this was the worst session for the NDP since they, they took office. And I think it was the best one for the BC Liberals, which happily coincided with, with Kevin's entrance into the legislature. But no one should be popping any champagne bottles just yet. There's a lot of work to do before the next election, whether that's next year or, or two years from now. Um, if I was giving advice to the BC Liberals, like they, they've got three priorities. Number one, they got to prepare for an early election next spring. Uh, number two, they need to continue with their rebranding process and start bringing folks uh, back into the tent on the conservative and the liberal side. And third, like Kevin's got to get out uh, across the province and start and talk directly to voters. I think that the uh, the barbecue circuit will be of an incredible importance uh, this summer. And also, um, you know, Ford won a commanding majority last night, uh, second term. And I actually think that there are a lot of lessons to be learned uh, from, for the, from Ford's campaign for the BC Liberals uh, in terms of, of tone, approach, strategy. Uh, you know, one of the things that the Ford campaign did in, in this election is they, he did less media. It's not like he did no media, but he did less and focused more on getting his message out directly to voters. And I think that that works really well for center-right parties who may not have the the friendliest audience in in mainstream media. Um, you know, I Ben Woodfiden actually he wrote a piece in in the National Post uh, yesterday, and he talks about this like kind of reshaping of of center-right politics and how conservatives are now really aligning uh, with with workers who were previously in more of the NDP camp. Um, and I think that this is uh, is a perfect lesson for the, the BC Liberals to take in terms of who are who are the demographics they should be going after uh, in the next election, which I think will be sooner than we all expect. What's your advice for the NDP? Well, I don't necessarily have advice. It's more of a of, of a prediction. Um, I, I've thought this for a long time. I think that Horgan, he's reaching his five-year anniversary uh, this summer. I know that he's uh, has a leadership role with Council of the Federation. I think Horgan has a real opportunity to leave uh, his post as premier with his head held high and, and his legacy and reputation intact museum debacle aside. And so that uh, that's a that's a rarity. And so my prediction has always been that he will step down after those those duties are complete. Uh, and then the NDP will be in a short leadership race. They'll have a new leader uh, next year. They will have a goodies-filled election budget, and then we'll go to the polls. Yeah, it's certainly a timetable that makes a lot of sense. It also, and not to be cynical and adding this date in, but around uh, that time next year is when members who were elected in the 2017 election uh, get their full pension. And that's always an important point for, for MLAs when you're talking about uh, moving into a snap election with no mm -hmm. uh, with no security. So you're right. There's a calendar there where we could be in an election early next spring. Jillian, the issue of John Horgan. I thought this was his weakest session uh, since uh, 2017. He had health issues. He obviously um, battled throat cancer successfully uh, in January. He had COVID in April. He appeared tired and he admitted that publicly. He dropped an F-bomb on the floor of the house at one point. I watched him in estimates with Kevin Falcon, and uh, he seemed to have, for lack of a better term, a bit of governmentitis, being kind of focused on talking about, well, the crime rate uh, internally in government uh, is down, well, crime to everyone else appears up, and he's arguing about Statistics Canada numbers on healthcare when emergency rooms are closing. 
what do you make a of where his performance recently and b if you think he's he might hang up his cape i don't premiers don't have capes but for lack of a better term they should have capes <laughs> we don't know premiers that should for have sure. capes yeah <laughs> um, this summer <laughs> Um, yeah, I think it, it did seem like maybe like, the, like the energy was a little bit different coming from the premier, but I also, I think that it's, it's a, it's a quandary for any, um, leader or governing party when they get, you know, this far into having been in government, um, because they have to run on their record, right. And they have to talk about all of the good things that they, they did, but that sometimes that can, can sound, um, out of touch when people are sort of wondering, you know, what you've done for them lately. Um, and you've already kind of expended all of your good ideas or your biggest good ideas, perhaps. Um, I don't know. I think it, with the museum, I think that, you know, thinking about it more in the last week after our show, I wondered if that was sort of like he wanted that to be kind of his local legacy. He said um, often that it reminds us that it's rare to have a premier from the island. Um, and, you know, I think that that the government and the premier were shocked with how that went over. And I, I think it could go either way. I think it could make him sort of double down and really want to see it through and sort of like not leave on that note, having made that decision and take responsibility for it. Um, or it could be kind of, you know, another thing that makes him feel like maybe he's sort of just done dealing with all of the pressure and the backlash about all of these these things um so i don't know it's going to be really interesting to watch it's i don't know if i i'm not a betting person so i wouldn't put money on it either way but uh, it would be hard to katie back to you we just have a minute left the idea like if horgan does double down stick around because of the museum project he's also the ndp's biggest asset so it helps the ndp but at the same time like what are the pros and cons of him choosing not to leave do you think Mm -hmm. Pros, as you said, uh, he has been a tremendous asset to the NDP brand. He has also kept the, the coalition on the left together. Uh, cons, I think he is potentially compromising his legacy. Uh, longest serving NDP premier, uh, record high popularity, got BC through COVID. Um, it, this, if he doesn't step down, then the museum might just might lag on that record. And uh, I think that would be unfortunate for him personally. Yeah, step down or you get dragged down or you, you know, drag it with you and make the museum an election issue and you win and then everyone says, great, you know, <laughs> it's who knows? Only one person knows it's John Horgan. We're all speculating on his future, but we expect some type of announcement of some sort uh, this summer. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks to the panel for being here. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and we'll be with you next week here on Political Capital. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.